Denny Lane. Denny Lane, really important figure in the whole Beatles story. One of our guests today uh, knew him personally, and that would be Darren Murphy, our uh, returning champion of many episodes now. Interplanetary Remix, take 444. One, two, one, two, three, four. Christmas time is here again. Christmas time is here again. Christmas time is here again. Christmas Welcome to this week's Wednesday with Fab. I'm Ed Chin. All of our regular co-hosts are not available, so <laughs> I have recruited in Sam Wiles from the Paul or Nothing podcast. Yo, what's going on everyone? Glad to be back. So as Sam says, that's it for the housekeeping this week. I'm Sam. I'm from Paul or Nothing. If you don't know who I am by now, go listen to Two Legs. <laughs> and joining us is a man who actually toured with Denny Lane last year. And again, if you don't know who he is, you haven't listened to this show long enough. Hey, Darren. Darren Murphy. Yes, it's him again. <laughs> it's that well, guy. It's that guy. As we all know, Denny Lane passed from where we are last week. And, you know, a very sad occasion. Oh. Yes, oh. it was very sad. I saw you there from Sam. I'm a very cynical, bitter person, and yet when Denny passed, being a brummy myself, a tear or two definitely fell down my face. 100%. I'm not afraid. And Sam wanted us to remind everybody that since he is a brummy, as he says, he is from Birmingham, he is in halfway, quarter way through a three-hour show celebrating the life of Denny Lane. I am Sailor Sam from Birmingham. Sailor Sam from Birmingham. I was actually in Birmingham about 21 years ago. I was on tour (laughs) with my sister, Trish Murphy, and we opened for Slobberbone. Hey, Brent Beth. Thanks for taking the time to connect, man. How are you doing? Started a terribly named band and uh, just to try to get free beer and play a friend's party. And, uh, you know, and then a couple of years later, we were, you know, making records and starting to tour. So. You've mentioned that to me before in a previous conversation. I, I, you know, I personally don't think it's such a bad name, but 
Uh, well, you know, in hindsight, from the exterior perspective, it's, yeah, I get it. It's kind of sweet, but yeah, no, it's a terrible name. Come on. <laughs> I mean, we knew we were, you know, we had a, we had a dog and stuff to us and Slarbone was just whatever the nasty thing that was chewing on. So it seemed very innocuous and sweet, but again, you know, it, we didn't start the band thinking we were going to do anything outside of, you know, playing our friend's party or maybe you know, opening for someone at one of the beer joints or something. So. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's part of the lore now. So I, you know, I, I appreciate it from one perspective and then the other perspective, I'm like, oh, damn. You know, Dan's been around a long time. It's probably uh, a pretty important place to you, I'm assuming. It is. Yeah. There's not a lot of 200 uh plus venue bars that would you know rent a grand piano for three days and hire someone to tune it and give me a day to tune the room so the piano doesn't feedback and and get jimmy webb in and then the uh the next night last night we because we had the piano we had scott dambaum and will johnson come and play and i mean how beautiful is that like you know scott's playing on the piano that jimmy webb played on and we learned from the rental company that the last person they had rented it to was Paul McCartney, and it's just one of those things. Wow. Now, that's a piece of trivia. Ed, you've got a lot to live up to for this. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see, how old was Denny? Denny is one of the few contemporaries that Paul has ever really recruited into the post-Beatles bands. Denny was 79 when he passed away, and I think his, his birthday is late in the year because he was about 77 when we were on the tour together in 2022. Uh, so he's had two birthdays since then. Same age as my father when he passed away. A lot of people in the UK that say things like, that's a good year to go. That's a good. There's never a good year to go. Anymore. It's always painful. It's always horrible. And all we can do is enjoy the memory. You know? Yes, that's true. And I think the, the saddest thing about Denny's passing was that he had been in ill health for quite a long time and and just not feeling good. So he, he spent his last four months in a lot of pain and discomfort. Well, I mean, he was performing up through at least March, right? I think so, yeah. But little appearances here and there. I don't know that he toured again after this Rubber Soul Revolver tour that, that we did, but he definitely went and made a lot of special appearances. There was a, a celebration for McCartney that was, wasn't that in New York or something? In March at, at Carnegie Hall. Yeah. Wow. <sighs> I, my gosh. Like, without appearing a bit glib, that is crazy how a year has gone by since he was active and he was out there and all the stuff has been taken away from us. Yeah. yeah, I think he did Florida shows through the summer. I know a tiny September is when we really started to hear things. September is when Elizabeth started the GoFundMe for him. Right. Did everyone assume that the fundraiser was a success? Or am I just out of the loop there? I don't know how much of a success it was. It was certainly drew the attention which she intended to get. There was a big thing in Los Angeles uh, just at the end of November Mm. at the Troubadour. Paul Schaefer was part of that. Oh, that was nice of him. And I'm sure Lawrence Juber was there. Let's hear from one and the only, Mr. Lawrence Juber. 
available on youtube oh uh, there was an auction to go along with that and mpl donated a copy of the uh, singles box from last year which i mean yeah it's five or six thousand dollars but maybe paul could have chipped in a little bit more you think uh. Look, <laughs> everyone's favorite jenny lane composition let's talk well, you got to go with Mola Kentire for me. Now, this is when I, as the host of Paul Lutton, get, get to be a bit of a knobhead. You've heard the Paul McCartney 1984 home piano tapes, right? Yes. And you've heard how far the composition Mola Kentire was during those sessions, right? Denny Lane co-wrote the song, or do you say Denny Lane helped finish off a nearly complete song? I just want to get the facts straight. I think it was at least as much as John Lennon contributed to certain other Paul McCartney songs, or, or more than Paul McCartney contributed to give Peace a chance. Like honestly, I think Denny contributed more to the rest of London Town than he did the biggest single from the London Town session. I mean, let's not forget Denny Lane contributed five co-writes. If you include Mother Pintire itself. So he takes he takes two lead vocals on this record on his own songs, um, Children Children, which is a beautiful sort of folk fairy style song. I've always loved it. It's very gentle, very unassuming. It was written in tribute to his kids, I think, at the time. There's Heidi, his daughter, I can't remember the other child's name. Deliver Your Children on side two, which I've already mentioned, which is one of my favourite wing songs. Very melancholy, very evocative, but with this very fast acoustic guitar strummed part and a great middle section where you hear 
um, Denny singing leads with um, Paul McCartney doing the backing vocals, which is quite interesting to hear. The title track, London Town, was a McCartney Lane contribution. Always loved that song. And then you've got two songs on side two, which Paul takes the lead on, which but which are co-writes. Don't Let It Bring You Down, which is another beautiful, folky kind of song. And then the absolutely crazy final track, Morse Moose and the Great Goose, at the end of the album, which was largely improvised, I think, by Paul and Denny uh, on deck of the boat that they were recording on. Denny plays piano, and the whole thing uh, is just built up into this... I don't know what you'd describe it as, really, just a freak out, really. I've been writing an episode in tribute to Denny recently, and I'm convinced now that it's not Band on the Run that is the album that everyone needs to be like, oh, Denny and Paul, Denny and Paul. I'm convinced now it is London Town. London Town's the one that we need to go back and re-examine now that we've had this tragic loss in our lives. I was having a discussion about that very same album with a, a wonderful musician named Bruce Hughes. Uh, he has a, a track record that goes back years and miles. was saying the same thing he said london town is arguably the most underrated mccartney album i think there's some terrific tracks on there i always like what was that i've had enough everyone thinks it's just a mccartney album and that there's not a lot going on and actually it's what wins at the speed of sound kind of wishes it was that kind of communal i dare to say nose to nose to use a certain phrase with a certain other songwriter there's definitely something going on with London Town that definitely needs re-examination in a not desperate way, but a deserving way, 100%. A quick question about London Town. Was that the era that Wonderful Christmas Time was born out of, or did that single off, come later? Years off after McCartney two sessions. Paul describes it as being written on a boiling hot day in July 1979, placing it just shortly after the end of the Back to the Egg session. I'd say actually Wonderful Christmas Time is the real complicated one where it's like, is this a Wings track or is this a McCartney track? The video for Wonderful Christmas Time featured the Back to the Egg. Well, it's a, it's a Wings video for a Paul McCartney track, that's for sure. Oh yeah, because that makes it easy. <laughs> Denny and Lawrence were around for at least another year anyway, you know, well into the tug of war sessions. Ed, something I found out very recently in doing a very detailed episode on Denny Lane, which I'll plug on the show, is the idea that Denny had actually recorded all of his stuff that was here on both Tug of War and Pods of Peace before 1981. I thought the whole narrative was, oh, Wings broke up, 
And then Paul was like, oh, no, Denny, oh, you know, you can stay. And so the war sessions in Montserrat, you can stay around, blah, blah, blah. And that he carried on over to the to the um, parts of the peace sessions. That's not actually true. Wings were actually broken up by the time we get to the sessions. And I find that to be a very fascinating uh, difference in what I thought the actual narrative was. Uh, you mean the tug of war sessions? Yeah. The story I've always heard was that George Martin didn't want wings on tug of war. Yeah, there is a kind of you know, George Martin, George Martin yeah. versus Denny narrative. I've definitely heard that. There's a part of that that just thinks that Denny is too too intrinsically tied to the to uh, the tug of war sessions. I mean, he's the basis on Wanderlust. Mm. He plays the Congas on Someone Who Cares. Uh, he is a co-writer on rain clouds it's not like denny was just oh he like eric stewart during the tug of water so denny was there he was co-writing with paul denny told me that tug of war had started out it was intended to be the next wings out which is why he was there a hundred percent fact no one will ever disagree with Mm. that the only thing is it's it's what paul says goes i guess it's like you know Oh, did, did Denny ever give a helping hand in, say, something like ballroom dancing? Probably, but we'll never know. And there's an uh, unfortunate large amount of both the Wings and the early 80s solo Paul discography that we're now never going to get the full story on who wrote what. I'm not one of these dickheads who's like, oh, you know, everything that was Paul and Denny was a, a mostly Denny. I'm not saying that. I'm willing to admit that no words was probably 80%, 70% poor. I'm not going to get pissy about that. But to say mm. that Denny wasn't an intrinsic member of the band, it's unfortunate that the stereotype is, are oh, Paul didn't like Denny, which A, isn't true. Paul did let Denny write lots of stuff in the band, and Paul also let Denny publish a lot of stuff in the band. I think I think the only misnomer that needs to be corrected at this point in history is the whole does Denny sing lead vocal on I lie around situation. Get back to London Town for a minute. Deliver Your Children is a great song, but Children Children is a bit much for me. Is it see now I think Children Children gets the flack that other songs in the Wings discography probably should. Like people treat it like Mary had a little lamb and it's not. Darren? I have no opinion on the matter. <laughs> if I'd known about this earlier, I would have put on London Town and studied it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, like, without uh-huh. being a bit of a, oh, I know things other people don't know, did everyone else know that Children, Children and Deliver Your Children weren't Denny Lane original, that they were co-writes? I did know they were co-writes. I no. am a complete fool, and I thought they were complete Denny Lane originals, and I was like, oh my gosh, Denny Lane had two solo compositions plus three co-writes, but no. Denny in 1777 has three co-writes with Paul, six if you include Mullock Tyre. And as far as I'm concerned, as a Birmingham lad, I am unbelievably proud that the biggest selling single for several years until Do They Know It's Christmas was co-written by a man who was born less than 10 miles away from me. And I know I shouldn't take pride in the achievements of other people, but I haven't got many achievements of my own, so I'll gladly drain Denny's. I really will. Plus, if I may speak freely for a moment, Denny is an absolute genius and an iconic member of the Birmingham community. Serves all the credit he gets. Moody Blues, Denny and the Diplomats, 
balls, whatever it is. Denny, you're awesome. The guy who uh, meant that you weren't able to give as many interviews to certain podcasters as you may have liked. Oh, well. But you guys, my ranting was done. <laughs> Denny also had some interesting ideas about the Beatle authors and the Beatle world, which have hopefully have changed uh, over the last years of his life. While he gave numerous interviews for the uh, Jimmy bio, he also later said, I never said any of that. And it's like, he definitely improved on his Paul stance before the end. Ten years ago, things were quite bitter, I think it's fair to say. But then they met at a UB40 gig, I think in 2015, 2014, and things have been patched up pretty much since then. Could you imagine if Paul and Denny had not reconnected by now? It would have been a scandal, but thank God. How much do you think they really reconnected? I, I have my doubts about that. Not for me to say, because I'm trying to get in the good graces of the land. <laughs> no. Enough that Paul would call and check in on him occasionally. Oh, did he? Okay. That's the gospel, according to Denny. There have been a lot of people who've been saying things like, why isn't Paul looking after Denny? And I think that's some of the most negative, least helpful rhetoric I've ever heard in podcasting. I mean, Paul McCartney probably knows several thousand people several hundred of which are probably old and ill, and it is not up to him to act in that way. And so if anyone's thinking, oh, Paul should have looked after Denny, you are completely wrong. You are incorrect as to how the real world works, and I should probably stop talking. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's just what Denny told me. He said, well, yeah, Paul checks in on me now and then. And I was like, okay, well, that's, that's nice. Isn't that heartwarming? Isn't that, like, so beautiful? They don't need to be best friends. Paul checked in on him. I'm happy with that. We'll close that. that you checked it on him that's all you need yeah well i mean the story is that paul and ringo now will facetime every week every other week so i mean if it's like that cool yeah and i imagine that paul's and ringo's business tangles were uh, a lot more complex and heartbreaking and bittering than anything he might have gone through with denny that's just my opinion Denny wishes he had the financial woes that Ringo imposed upon him. Compared to those guys, Denny was not a man of means, and he didn't even—he couldn't get health insurance because he was not a U.S. citizen, and so that was, you know, one of the reasons for all of the GoFundMe campaigns that were set up. He was paying his hospital bills out of pocket, which was enormously difficult. I don't know what happens after you've passed away. How much hospital debt you're responsible for? But anyway, that's another conversation for another day. It doesn't matter as long as America's not a country that requires payment for healthcare. Oh, wait. Oh, sorry. Sorry. That was the, <laughs> that was the brummy in me talking. I'm sorry, gentlemen. I really am. 
All right, Sam, do you know exactly how much Paul paid for Denny's half of Mull of Kintyre? I've heard that it was both a million dollars and a million pounds. I've heard it's a hundred thousand pounds and a million pounds. To any of your listeners who don't know the goth, Denny's partner in the late 70s, her brother-in-law shot her father, which was a very traumatic moment, and it led to a divorce. He was dealing with addiction and overspending and a lack of thriftiness on his own part. And so he needed to take a loan for either £100,000 or a million pounds. Those are the two figures I've heard. You saying a million dollars is even more interesting. But there is a very famous Paul McCartney quote where he goes, yeah, you know, Denny got a million pounds or whatever. That's a lot of what they, people base their kind of poor Denny relationship on. And I don't disbelieve Paul when I say that he paid Denny a lot of money. You pay the right amount of money. Very different question. It really comes down to what you personally think Denny was worth during this time. And unfortunately, most fans do think Denny was worth more. And that's not what he got. We will leave it at it was a lot, whether it was anywhere near even what the future earnings of Mull of Kentire would be. Well, maybe, maybe not. Well, the problem is British tax law at the time was based on your previous year's earnings. So say if you were, say, uh, a kind of gypsy guitarist who mostly played the blues and didn't really do anything that serious and then you were the number two guitarist on the Wings Over the World tour, and then say you were expected by the British government to keep earning Wings Over America kind of funds when actually there was no way you were ever going to earn that much because Paul McCartney wasn't interested in touring or releasing Denny Lane original track. It's just the way it is. I don't mean to sound mean to Paul. I don't dislike the way he treated Denny. But there's another part of me that thinks, did you need to take collateral when Denny asked for a couple of hundred grand or a million quid or whatever? Could we have just not have given Denny a million quid and called it quick? I know that sounds quite dickish to mention, but I mean, Mull of Kintyre wouldn't exist without Denny. Most of London Town wouldn't exist without Denny. If Denny had left wings during late 1973 then there'd be no band on the run so ah. let's go to darren why don't we have some danny lane stories from you because well that's why you're here (laughs) (laughs) very quickly a little bit of history of my involvement in this tour and how denny and i came to meet i had previously done the white album tribute tour in 2019 that was hosted by todd rundgren and christopher cross and i came through christopher cross he and i live in the same town not five minutes from each other actually and so when they got together to do this next tour it was todd's turn to pick a drummer and he picked prairie prince and christopher brought me in as sort of an auxiliary fellow who could play guitar parts, who could sing vocals, who could play percussion, who could play some random key bits. So you were the Denny to Denny. Basically, yeah, yeah. I was Denny's Denny. So I became instrumental in helping get things organized. And the music director was Todd's guitarist, the late, great Jesse Gress. But five days before rehearsal started, 
Jesse Gress called me, told me he was too sick to go on the road and had to back out of the tour. So I became the default music director at that moment. And my very first task as the new music director was I had to call Denny Lane in person and tell him that he was no longer allowed to sing Time to Hide on the tour. What? Yes, exactly. Yes. And uh, because Toby Ludwig, the producer of the tour, the guy who was writing the checks, told him that he had to sing Band on the Run, which he was not at all fond of for many reasons. If I had to band, I'm not singing Band on the Run. <laughs> you know, being up here and doing online is really great because, see, you know, I can do what I want. <laughs> to say it was not a, a great way to start a fruitful relationship and uh but we, you know we we did the best we could and 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 denny is kind of a, a xenophobic fella you know when you you've, first meets people especially someone that's you know a nowhere man like myself um he, he didn't trust me a whole lot um but after we got a couple of shows under our belts and we actually got on the bus and were able to just kick back and have a drink or two he was still a bit sore about the song choices but i said look man if it had been up to me i would have you singing again and again and again i love that song he said what I can't believe you know that one. I said, yes, man. It's my favorite one of your songs. It's my favorite song on my favorite album. Um, so that turned everything around. That completely broke the ice. He's like, oh, man, I'm really impressed that you knew that one. Not again and again and again. Go more obscure. Come on. That just opened up the floodgates. Immediately, he started telling me stories about how that incarnation of Wings came about. And then he you know, talked a little bit about the the pot bust in Japan. Oh, did Jenny have a lot to say about that particular moment in history? What a job! <laughs> well, another thing that, that he hasn't mentioned in other interviews, yeah. If there's anything I can take away from this episode is that Denny, he, he was a real guy. He, he spoke his mind and he said things that others say Apple MPL 
sycophants would never say. Gay would mention if a song wasn't up to his standard. He would mention yeah. if an album wasn't to his liking. He was a very honest man, and I can always appreciate that. You're right. You're absolutely right. He was very opinionated. If you express your appreciation for him and his accomplishments, it's just a matter of being respectful and also just acknowledging him for what he does rather than for what Paul did or whatever. Um, then he's he's much more open to that. You know, if it's, it's if it's something that he likes, then he'll he'll give you more of the time of day, as it were. But the most moving thing that he said to me was he he was talking about actually being in the studio with Paul on December 9th, 1980, you know, the, the morning after John was shot. Oh, did he tell you the moving van story? Paul came into the studio that next day. I didn't think he would. We were at Air Studios at the time. And he came in because he wanted to get out of the house. He wanted to just do something, you know, to take his mind off it a little bit. But in actual fact, we just sat and talked all day. We didn't do any recording. And actually, we looked out the window. We were five stories up at uh, Air Studios in London. And we looked down at Oxford Circus, and a big furniture truck went by with Lennon's written on the side of it. And we both looked at each other and went, uh-oh, what's that? Because, you know, it was a sign in a way. Weird. And we just talked about John, because you've got to remember, I knew John really well, too. I actually, um, I drive by Central Park every day, almost, and I, I still haven't been to his um, memorial thing there because I feel weird about it. It's like you know, it's, he was a friend, and um, it's like I haven't even been to that place. So it, it was very strange. It was shocking, um, but it was me and Paul just sitting there talking about a friend, really, rather than who he was to the public, you see. And and Paul was obviously, like, well, completely, like, he needed somebody to talk to, I suppose, and I was that person, and vice versa. And, uh, you know, when you're dealing with the press, it's another story, but when you're dealing with someone close who knew the same person, it's completely, it's like a family thing, almost. So it was very strange. But it was very sort of, the closure was there, you see. He sort of, he got it out of his system more. He said to me, I'm never going to, you know, you know, when people argue and they fall out, he says, I'm never going to do that again. I don't remember that one, but he just told me about them being in the studio together, listening to tracks and stuff. And he, and he said that Paul told him, man... I'm that's the last time I fall out with someone and I'll square up with them. Wouldn't it have been the worst end to a story if Paul and Danny had never made up? But he actually saw ahead of time, realised, no, it is just nicer to be a kind, loving person. And before the end, he actually gave Danny his fair dues and no one can take that away from him. He really can't. Exactly, yeah. So for him to, like, even though he's Grouplessly bought the song rights for Mullican Tire, then he's still the official co writer. There's been no Stalin esque rewriting of history here. He's actually done right by Denny, and I'll be the first to admit I never saw that coming. Fair enough. Give it up for Sam, people. <laughs> <laughs> we can't let the hour go by without well, talking about Denny's signature song, which to me is Go Now. Not a song he wrote. 
but a song that he owns. Nobody delivered that song with the kind of emotion, iconic emotion, that he delivered on that first Moody Blues single. And to his last days, to his last years, he continued to deliver it with the same intensity. Uh, that was one of his songs that he did on this tour, one of his spotlight songs on that tour. It was Band on the Run, but first it was Go Now. So he would come over to my workstation and get on the piano. I would step aside and, and play guitar and sing backup, but I would look at him. And as soon as he opened his mouth and, and said, we've already said, and started playing the piano, it was like 30, 40 years just fell off of his face. And just like, what bit were you doing? Let's, let's get out of brass tacks here. Come on. <laughs> oh, uh, gosh, I, I think I, I had like this high harmony. I, I was doing something like, ah, no, something like that. But night by night, consistently night after night, that was my favorite moment of the tour. I just watched the Denny Lane that I've grown up with just spring to life. And because there were moments, you know. How do we feel about Say You Don't Mind? To me, that's the ultimate Denny song. So rebuttal I'm waiting for. Say You Don't Mind? Is that a, a Moody's tune or is that a Wings tune or is it in between? It gets you so bad that a doormat sees better times. That's bad. It's a sign to get back and think up some better lines. I've been doing some growing, and I'm scared of you going. So lay down lines, you don't mind. Let me up this time. Orchestra String Band, that is one of those ones. It was uh, done by Colin Bluestone. From the Zombies, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, I know what you're talking about. And that is credited as being the reason that Paul really invited Denny into Wings. They were opening for Jimi Hendrix. And so when was that? What, 67? Probably at Brian Epstein's theater. Paul and I became friends because, you know, we lived in the same area. John George was a real good friend later because I, I had a house not far from him. The Moody's had a lot of parties, basically. <laughs> and everybody came to these parties, including Spencer and many others. So anyway, the, the long friendship came from me and Paul, and then eventually, of course, you know, he wanted somebody to work with. So the crunch is that he called me after I did a gig at the Savile Theatre, Brian, Brian Epstein's Theatre. did a gig there with Jimi Hendrix, who actually said to me, I've got I to gotta brag this one a little right. bit. Jimmy goes, hey, man, this was in the club afterwards, the speakers. He goes, oh, that was great, man, because I did it with a string band and a, and a sort of rock trio. And he says, great ideas, man. He says, and I loved your guitar player. I says, that was me. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, that's a great thing coming from Jimi Hendrix. Anyway, John and Paul were in the audience that, that night. And about a year later, when I got back from my stint in Spain, where I ran away to get my head back together, you know, do all this sort of thing I have to do to get away from the business once in a while. He called me, and I was in Scotland the next day, and Wings was born. So there you go. Paul Newland. I want someone to help me ruin another 50 songs with too many strings, and that's exactly what Denny did. <laughs> Denny was quick to impress on me that he never considered himself a fan of the Beatles. 
You know, he considered himself to be a contemporary. They were on the scene at the same time, and he was busy doing his thing and working with his band. Are we going to say that if you support the Beatles, you're a Beatles contemporary? They all considered themselves contemporaries of each other. Whether they had higher chart positions or, or whether they were higher on the bill, it didn't matter. They were all just working musicians, working entities, trying to get their own job done and make their own ways. And they knew everybody else in the scene and they kind of kept up with what was happening. But when you're in that business, you can't afford to be fans of these other bands the way that people on the street are fans, the way that I was a fan before I became a musician. You know, I'll always be a Beatles fan. Not cool to be to be dead and then go like, oh, I love Slow Down. You know, it, it just doesn't work, does it? That was probably like one of the things that attracted Paul to Denny was that Denny was never starstruck by him. He was never starstruck and he knew how to work his way around a string instrument that wasn't a guitar or bass. The idea that Denny Lane was multi-classes and multicultural <laughs> is taken for granted. Yeah. But in Birmingham, in the early 60s, you had either people who knew what the general consensus of music was or you had people who knew what reggae, Irish folk, you know, all these different types of genres, rock and roll, pop. There was lots of going on in Birmingham at that time, musical. And if McCartney wanted someone who didn't do that, he would have found them. But Denny could do literally everything Paul wanted to do. And that was because of his multicultural, multifaceted Birmingham background. There was a, a huge workforce of multicultural workers and if that didn't exist, I'm not convinced that Denny would have been the man for Paul. But Denny was. He knew the different genres. He could play acoustic, electric. He wasn't a dick. He was like, I'm going to be lead. Junior McCord, never, was never, there, never going to be lead. He's a number two to McCartney, who was okay with being rhythm guitar. Can we appreciate the humility of this motherfucker right now? Come on. Like, if I'm going to be number two to Paul McCartney, I'm being lead guitar (laughs) for my own ego. Denny, a man who has been accused of having ego, never played anything other than what McCartney told him to play. So I'm never going to accuse Denny Lane, Brian Hines, of having ego ever. Well, I think you have to have an ego to work at that level. So everybody Mm -hmm. does. And everybody has their sort of ownership over their own persona because you struggled very very hard all your life to uh, to have that kind of status and so you've a lot of times you have to defend it constantly i'm not being glib there's a lot of unprofessional uh side players a lot of unprofessional main players oh yeah and it's like oh my god then he just needs someone to like, like a, a fucking brian epstein to like well he actually had brian epstein but you know what i mean so to take him to the next level and the phrase that keeps coming back to me with Denny Lane is the big time. Denny wanted the big time. He was not an unambitious man. He wanted to be number one. And I'm not a man who creates excuses for anyone. But Denny had a lot of issues yeah. in his way that stopped him from being the true wings number two, that generic, simply simple to describe pop culture would afford. Denny deserved better, but pop culture did not afford that, I'm afraid. 
Well, Denny also did not necessarily make the best decisions. I mean, as we've kind of mentioned, or at least mentioned around, I'm sorry, JoJo was not a good decision. JoJo? JoJo Lane. (laughs) Regardless of whether JoJo Lane is a reliable source or not, um, I don't judge love. Fair enough. Darren, you've often mentioned the comedy act on the road that was Denny Lane and Joey Molinden. And in fact, when I talked to Joey at the fest last August, he also mentioned the same thing. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, you know, that was an instant chemistry. Those guys didn't know each other all that well before that tour, before they both got in the rehearsal room together. But they were the two oldest guys in the group by a handful of years. And there was just something about them, their personalities and their senses of humor and their knowledge of history that just clicked instantly. And so those two guys together, they were just a hoot. They knew the same kind of jokes and ancient limericks and stuff. So they were just always kind of in stitches and they would duck out. There was an Irish pub in New York City where we were rehearsing. It was called the Triple Crown. And after rehearsals, they would just be over there pulling pints and solving all the problems of the universe together until God knows how late. (laughs) And then the two of them would be on the bus. They would outlast Todd Rundgren, who could outlast anybody. (laughs) I'd be up, you know, trying to sleep in my bunk and I'd hear those two guys in the front parlor and they're just like, (laughs) it was uh, hilarious just to watch the, the two of them together. I felt great that those two had each other. You know, it, it it gave them something a little extra to cling on to with all of these different personalities on the tour. Steve Ferroni and Jason Sheff and Christopher. There was an, an awful lot of, uh, of personalities being projected and uh, a lot of energy flowing. Well, I mean, to a certain extent, it's the same sort of energy that the Beatles gave off. I mean, that's why we love them so much. And well, uh, if Sam is anything to go by, they can talk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they can laugh for sure. They can always have a laugh. And Denny, one of the things that I noticed about him is that when the tour is over, we did two legs of the tour and he was always the first one to come up and give everybody a goodbye hug and well wishes. He and I, we didn't always agree, me as music director and, and him as you know the principals in the band. I'm sure he could have done without me, but at the end of the stretch, he would always come up and say, man, it's been such a pleasure. You know, give me a big hug. And he'd say hello to whoever I was with. You know, if my family was there, he'd be so sweet and nice to him. That was really cool of him. And I love that about him. That brings a tear to my eye. No irony. I'm very jealous he got to speak to the man. Uh, he really was an icon in his own way. It's awful. It really is. I'm not much of a sentimental person, but folks, if any of you out there are feeling a bit low right now, I get it. Why do we think that Denny stuck around that long? I kind of read on what's going on and in, in, in some of these things we've touched on. Denny didn't seem to, while he had an ego and while he wanted to be number one, for goodness sake, the man had spent a year or so off trailing Django Reinhardt. He was used to living in less than adequate conditions. And so when Paul offered him a cot, Sure, I'll take that. At the outset of Wings? At the outset of Wings, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, really through the whole era, as we know, the only time he really got significantly paid was on the Wings Over America tour. He certainly got his royalties off the songwriting, but... Unfortunately, Wings weren't this casual touring band. Paul and Denny with Paul giving Linda a great amount of support. 
not entirely sure that something is, that uh, history is going to reveal to us, but the fact that Denny and Paul wrote borderline, and I'm going to use a phrase here that quite kind of special nose to nose. They were writing nose to nose together, just like hands for me. Me, well, you back here with You know what I mean? Paul and Denny were close, and there's a lot of. Denny versus John kind of rhetoric that's not very helpful, but I certainly feel that Denny, he plugged a gap for Paul that probably no one else could have. I think that's the safest bet. I think Denny did something that no other Paul McCartney collaborator ever could do or did. Elvis Costello, nowhere near. Anyone else, nowhere near. I'm sorry, but Denny is the only post-John Lennon collaborator. Well, Denny was clearly the constant. You know, every single Wings album has Denny on it. Denny stuck around. He actually put his time in, and he took a gamble that probably should have paid off for him far better than it did. Yeah, most definitely. I've never really been able to get into much of Denny's post-Wings material. I mean, Japanese Tears is all right. It's okay. I mean, uh, it's got the best version of Weep for Love available. It's got the best version of Say You Don't Mind available. And then sometime in the 90s, he just kind of started relying a little bit heavily on his Wings material, but that is what people wanted to see. So that's what he did live, and he re-recorded things a couple of times at least. The, that Denny Lane and Wings album is... Uh, I don't know about that. I don't know. I mean, if I was to be accused of like recycling material I'd written before, I guess I'll have to live with that. <laughs> Denny wanted the big time, and Paul offered him the big time. Paul gave him the big time, and then things went the way they went. That's the best way I can put it. I'll take it. So we'll close out on this. The eternal question, does Wings belong in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? I kind of think they do. I mean, they really weren't just... Paul's backing band. There has been no issue with the Rock Hall inducting bands where there were rotating members. I really would like to see it happen. Denny went back and forth on that throughout the last decade. He has said no before. Now, are we assuming that that's post-Wings breakup bitterness, or is that his final opinion? I've read interviews where he said, no way, where he said, oh, you know, there's no reason for Wings to be in the Hall of Fame. And then I've also read interviews where he said, yeah, it might be nice. I think they should be in for no other reason. There were people who were Wings fans before they were Beatles fans. So they had an impact and it wasn't just because it was a post-Beatle project. There was an enormous amount of heart that was put into it. And obviously it's the voice of Paul McCartney and his musical sensibilities, but it was the vibe of Denny and also the harmony voice of Denny and the playing of Denny that solidified that material and made it contemporary. So on that basis, I have no problem with them being in the Hall of Fame. To a certain that doesn't matter. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as an institution is what it is. Sam? Uh, in terms of my man Denny from, you know, Tysley, right down the road from me, I would like him to get his fair dues. Whether I regard them as the correct fair dues is irrelevant. I'm not going to say genius because I don't like that word, but... If you want to credit someone who could put up with Paul McCartney for 10 years, well done, Denny. Uh, you're an absolute genius. <laughs> you're a gracious gentleman. 
I'll say it, even if other people won't. But, uh, well done, well done, bro. Uh, I'm I'm proud to be from the same area of the country as you. Uh, if if everyone else is ashamed of that fact, then I will retreat from the podcasting world in general. But until then, peace and love, peace and love. While he was certainly a founding member of the Moody's, I kind of think including him in the Moody's induction was the Rock Hall deciding to kick the can down the road a little bit. Oh, what's wrong with giving someone a, a gracious inclusion? Like, you know, there are lots of girls that I would, you know, I would not say with the best shag of my life, but I'll include them. I enjoyed that shag. <laughs> it's Paul's band. Denny has said it's Paul's band. So let's just get over ourselves and admit that our favorite band experience was actually just one bloke doing it the whole time. And let's move on with our lives. Let's let Denny rest. So you don't care. And if it happens, fine. If it doesn't happen, that's fine. Yeah, basically. Denny Lane is, is as important as Paul McCartney. It's all equally integral. Uh, that's my final. Anything else you want to say that Sam talked over, Derek? <laughs> Denny was a um, big fan of the blues. Anytime that we were at Soundcheck, he would immediately start playing the blues and singing the blues. That was uh, one of the only things that, that he cared about. And boy, could that guy wear a pair of trousers. I was envious of his trousers. <laughs> Well, it's all about the trousers. It's all about the trousers, man. I'm happy with that. That Ringo filled a big pair of trousers, but he never got that due. So it's at the end of this, everyone. The takeaway is that Denny Lane had a big dick. I'm very happy with that. Uh, Good night, everyone. Thank you very much. Denny Lane, big penis. (laughs) Monica Tyre, big penis. Thank you, Denny Lane. Thank you. Denny was fab for letting me express this opinion. Generally, thank you, everyone, for letting me express my unending love for Denny Lane. I mean, I never played with the man. I wish I had. Dude, I can only offer my most extensive jealousy to your position in life. Well done. I'm, I'm really happy. Well, thank you, man. It was such a pleasure hearing your stories and getting your insight. You know more about Denny and his career than I probably ever will. It is in the morning for me. I'm going to go to bed. I love you lots. You take care, everyone, all right? All right, Sam. Thank you, and good night. Dude, um, forget Ed. You're coming on my show. We're going to have a chat. Sweet dreams, Sam. Thank you so much. Take care, bro. We've already said... Boom, 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 boom. I'm going to say goodbye. I'm so sorry. I'm all so right. Sorry. Thank you, and good night, as I already said. Ed, remember, this is your house, but nobody calls. All right. Thank you, Darren. You know, I'm I'm sorry you didn't get to say a little bit more, but it sounds like you got everything you wanted to say out at least. I did. Absolutely. Yeah. This has been enlightening and so much fun. Sam's a good guy, but boy, can Sam talk. Oh, yeah. <laughs> John Stone was going to be here, but his son got pulled into an all-day orchestra thing. So John Stone got to go listen to his son perform with the state-level orchestra. Ooh. Ain't an insignificant thing. No, not at all. Got to be sharp with your instrument and got to be able to sight read like a bat out of hell. And do you have anything going on anytime soon? Uh, I know you were on local radio doing your Lennon thing uh, not too long ago. Yeah, nothing on a, on a huge level, no. There's a Rush Evans, who is a DJ for Co-op Radio in Austin. Every Monday, he has a show called Off the Beatle Path. 
across Abbey Road, down Penny Lane, and right past Blue Jay Way. You're now going off the Beetle Path with KOOP HD1, HD3 Hornsby. And if you've met me, you understand why I did not fade out that Harry Nielsen song early. It's Harry. It's got to play all the way, man. Thank you, Miss Buttercup, for another great show. It's all Beetle-related from here on out. And boy, do we have fun planned today. So begins the Beetle Christmas season. Beetlemas. You should see... You should see Brandon's T-shirt right now, Beetle Fan Club Christmas. I've got live performers here, great ones. Ty Hurlis, Darren Murphy, Trish Murphy. How cool is this? We're going to have all sorts of fun, but first, we will pay proper homage to the late Denny Lane. Uh, So we'll be um, geeking out on Beatles Christmas stuff. That'll be fun. Co-op, Radio FM. I guess it's koop.com. I believe it's available globally for like two weeks or something. Okay. They do archive the shows. So, I mean, once people get this, they will be able to go and hopefully find it in the archives of the show. I will put up a link to it as soon as I see it. Well, I mean, that will be tomorrow our time. Yes. All right. I appreciate that. Your bands are continuing. You are currently lead singer for a Talking Heads uh, tribute act? Yes, Heartburn is the name of the band. Uh, So we're going on a a, a brief little Texas tour at the end of this month, and then I'll hook back up with Skyrocket for New Year's Eve. Here, here in town, actually. That's uh, that's right. Over at last concert, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then um, we'll hit the grind next year, and hopefully both those projects will be stepping up and playing more. We got one from the unsung hero of the Beatles. Hey, uh, real fast, is a oh. great segue on this. We're doing George's birthday show again. It's a Saxon. I think it's the 24th of February. February, coming up. And, and Darren, you're more than welcome to, to join us again this year. If you, you, you know, you know, it's, it's myself and Ron and those guys, and, and you, you threw in, and it was fantastic. So, uh, I don't know, man. George really wasn't my favorite Beatles. <laughs> Anyway, I figured I had to like get that plug in. Not a time. problem. I'm a terrible liar. George, George is my favorite Beatle, and he's, he's I call him the unsung hero because uh, he saved so many Beatles albums. He saved Abbey Road. He's he dominated Revolver. Yeah. Uh, just what what a vibe, incredible vibe. And uh, and here's a, a great song to go out with. It's called Ding Dong, Ding Dong. One, two, oh, one, two.
ring out the false, ring in the truth. Ring out the old, ring in the new. I want to ding dong, ding dong, ding dong, ding dong, ding dong, ding dong, ding. And with that, it's officially Beatle Christmas season. It's Beatlemas, folks. I, gosh, I can't thank you guys enough. This is just too much fun. Darren Murphy, Trish Murphy, Ty Herless. I knew it was going to be great, but... Thank you much. Yeah, we always love having you on. We'll, we'll have you on again uh, real soon here. Probably, well, uh, we know that in February, the underdub version of Band on the Run is coming. That might be fun to do a show on that. And then, oh, well, so before we leave, your opinions on Now and Then and the new Red and Blue. As a drummer, you got to love the way the new red sounds. Yes, I do. The standout track for me is You Can't Do That. The drums coming forward on that song really makes it rock. And it's just a reminder of, for anyone that doesn't already know, the Beatles were just a fantastic rock and roll band and Ringo was such a, a solid drummer. But I think that my takeaway from the D-mixes is they're fun to listen to, but they're also a reminder that those original engineers got it right the first time. They still haven't beaten the, uh, the mono mixes, in my opinion. And for now and then, I was a little taken aback when I first heard it because of my experience with the song, having performed it for the first time to a paying audience back in 2005 as part of the Lennon musical. We had sort of an intimate relationship with that song because Yoko had given it to us. So in order for me to really get into the Beatles released version of it, I had to forget about all of that. I had to block out that experience and pretend that I'd never heard the song. It was one of those unique instances where most people hear the demo for a song before they actually hear the finished recording. That never happens in the music world. So once I'd done that, once I just like, pretended that I'd never heard the song before, I had a complete new set of ears and it opened my ears, it opened my heart. And I, I just, I love that track. It's beautiful. Are you one of those who doesn't like that they took out the, I don't want to lose you? I was surprised not to hear it. I think that's one of the best parts of the tune. While it's definitely the last Beatles recording, it's not necessarily the last Lennon and McCartney song. Because McCartney could easily take that I don't want to lose you and supplement that with something else he's got. Uh, well, and that's exactly what John Lennon would have done. Yeah, Lennon, you know, they did it all he, the time. He always did that. Just pull, pulled out these little bits and turned it into other songs. And Peter Jackson has said much the same thing, that there are any number of demos that Paul and Ringo might add on to that could be, if not Beatles songs, certainly songs featuring three or even all four of them. Yeah, who knows? Well, Certainly not me. <laughs> <laughs> the future lies ahead. All right. 
Thank you, Darren. I'm glad we got this chance to talk about Denny Lane. Thank you, Sam. Uh, <laughs> you can talk, but we're, nice. we're glad we, we, had to, uh, we had some time with you, and we will talk to you soon. Take care, Ed. Thanks a lot. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. Back in 2005, I was in New York and, uh, and I was working on a John Lennon musical called Lennon, uh, written and directed by Don Scardino. And it was at a time when the Broadway community was getting ready to put together a charity Christmas album called Carols for a Cure. And they asked the Lennon cast if they had uh, a Christmas song. And I said, well, I've got one. So... Uh, uh, myself and uh, a wonderful singer named Rona Figueroa went into the studio and recorded this uh, this song uh, to represent the cast of Lennon the Musical. Oh. And I, there was a little, I remember there was a little spirit, spin at piano sitting in the studio and the engineer told me that, uh, that John Lennon had played on it at one time. <laughs> no. <clears throat> I don't know. I, it's... That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> this, this is a song called Christmas and Beyond. Winter time appears, the sounds that I hear are warm and bright. Choirs in the street. Another heart to beat along with mine Today my second life begins And it's the best there's ever been It's all that I could ever wish for Christmas and beyond sing 
I knew everything would be alright And I won't shed another tear I'll just think of you and you'll be here It's all that I could ever wish for Christmas Tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going.